0: hello guys we are back with a second episode um this episode is going to be the christmas or like surrounding christmas murders um i have five different cases and some of them are super long and some of them are like little short ones that aren't very known i think most of you if you watch as much true crime as i do you'll have heard of at least three of them but if not Awesome, you get to hear about a new case today. Um, today I'm going to crochet. I have this giant blanket that I've been working on since like the beginning of quarantine and I'm trying to make it my comforter for my bed. And I keep putting it off, so I think that will be a good thing to work on during this long case. So grab a snack, grab a drink, grab some hot cocoa, um, or even grab your own crocheted projects and we'll get right into it. Okay, here we go. So this case is known as the Christmas murder-suicide, or also the Grapevine Massacre. Um, The murderer in this case is, I'm going to butcher this name, Azizola Yazdanpana, but he goes by Bob, thankfully, um, because I'm white, and I have no culture, and I have no idea how to say people's names, and I would feel awful if I was Mispronouncing, mispronouncing someone's name throughout the entire case um in this case it doesn't really matter because he's a murderer and yeah you know um his birthday was May 29th 1955 he was 56 at the time of the murder um he was a Gemini they're known for being smart and speedy yikes um the day of the murders was obviously Christmas day in the morning more specifically on or in 2011 and the location was Grapevine, Texas. So, Bob's victims were his wife. I'm going to but- butcher all of these names. I'm just warning you. Fatima Ramadi. She was 55. And she goes by Nazrin. Ali Yazdanpana, 14. His daughter. Nona Yazdanpana, 19. His other daughter. Zoray Zari, 58. His sister-in-law. Mohamed Zari, 59, his brother-in-law. Or, I don't really know, actually, which one was the in-law. Um, and then Zer- Sarah Zari, 22. I'm so sorry, those names. So this case is classified as a murder-suicide, and the method was shooting, and I found the specific guns. Um, They were a Smith & Wesson 9mm and a Glock 23 I know nothing about guns, Um, so if you do, there you go, and if you don't, welcome to the club. So, the murderer was Bob, and a little bit about Bob was that him and Nazrin, his wife, or his ex-wife, were newly separated in the march before this December, and it seemed as though Nazrin was making a wonderful life for herself and her two daughters, but Bob was struggling to keep up with bills, and he was having a hard time figuring out life on his own. So on Christmas morning in 2011, Bob decided to enter the home of his estranged wife unexpectedly, unexpectedly, and that uh, that apartment was filled with their two kids and her family, and he decided to come dressed as Santa Claus. Terrifying, right? So Sarah The 22-year-old sent a text message to her boyfriend, sarcastically speaking about how Bob was trying to be the father of the year by showing up in an unexpected costume. Little did the family know, Bob was hiding two fully loaded guns under his suit. It's not known exactly when or why Bob started shooting, but it is known that he came there strictly to do that. Um, this is your official trigger warning if you can't handle violence. Um... I'm going to be explaining how the victims were found. So Ali, fourteen, was found with multiple gunshot wounds to the head, as well as Nona, who was nineteen. Zoray, fifty-eight, she died of multiple gunshot wounds to the head, and Mohammed, fifty-nine, died of multiple gunshot wounds to the head, chest, and abdomen. Nazrin, the wife, the ex wife, she was fifty-five, and she also died of multiple gunshot wounds to the head, and Sarah, twenty two, Died of multiple multiple gunshot wounds to the head as well. So Bob ended up making a phone call to 911 around this time. It isn't known if it was during the shooting or after the shooting was completed, but I'll go ahead and read the transcript for that. So 911 answered. They said, Grapevine, 911, what is your emergency? No answer. So they said, hello, Grapevine, 911. Bob ended up saying, help, help. 911 responded by saying, you need help? At this point, Bob started whispering, a shooting. 911 prompted, are you sick? Bob answered, whispering again, shooting people. 911 couldn't quite hear it, so they said, what was that? Bob then did not respond and just started heavily breathing into the phone. Um, I found out later that they actually couldn't hear what he was saying while it was happening, and they had to go and enhance the sound afterwards, so... Yeah, when the police officers arrived on the scene, Muhammad, his brother-in-law or brother, I could never find out, was deceased, holding a gun in his right hand. It seemed as though the shooting broke out right after opening presents as there were still wrapping paper all over the ground. That's so sad. Um, My tone is very deceiving. This is awful. Then They then found Bob, deceased, who had turned the gun on himself after calling 911, and he had planted the gun in Muhammad's hand just before doing so. They found out that Mohammed didn't shoot anything through forensic testing, like gunpowder residue and stuff like that. So it seemed as though maybe Bob was trying to show that Mohammed had a place in this shooting as well. Um, So why did Bob commit these crimes? There were many speculations about why Bob would have wanted to commit this crime against his family. But it really all boils down to just plain jealousy. They, His wife and him had just separated... She got custody of his two daughters, and they and she moved into a nice apartment in a nicer part of town. This left Bob with no family, and his money was quickly dwindling out. At the time of the murders, his power had actually been off for a little over a week. They found that out when they went to go search his computer for motives behind the murder. Um. So I guess he decided the best way to get back at Nazrin, who was doing so well on her own, was to commit murder. Yeah, that that seems completely right. Not... So, usually after the, like, in the aftermath part, I tell you what they were tried and charged with, but in this case, he ended up, uh, killing himself. So, you know, yeah. Um, add a note, the police and, or the people in place of Grapevine said that this was the worst crime that has ever happened before, and it's something they've never seen in their part of Texas. So, that was the Christmas murder-suicide, or Grapevine murder all right, friends, so now I'm going to go ahead and do the Ashland tragedy. um the quick case on this is that the murders were named George Ellis, Ellis Kraft, and William Neal. so when I refer to Ellis, I'm referring to Ellis Kraft. I go by first names, and when I'm referring to George, I'll be referring to George Ellis um, I could not find their birthdays. this happened quite a while ago so no zodiac signs will be provided. In this case, the day of the murders were December twenty third slash twenty fourth, late twenty third, early twenty fourth, in eighteen eighty one. The location was Ashland, Kentucky, and the victims were Fanny Gibbons, she was fourteen; Robert Gibbons, he was seventeen; and Emma Carrico Thomas, she was fifteen. The method was blunt force trauma and arson yeah not yeah the murders happened on december 23rd of 1881 fanny and robert or robbie's mother went to visit her older sister not her older sister their older sister in ironton and she took their younger brother with her she asked the neighbors if their daughter emma could spend the night with fanny and robbie since they were staying back at the house by themselves With them just being a house over, Mrs. Thomas, Emma's mother, saw no issue with it. In the early morning hours on Christmas Eve in 1881, the Gibbons' house on the corner of 28th Street and Carter Avenue was set ablaze. Emma's mother looked over at the house around 5 a.m. and thought that she had just seen a bush set on fire, but when she rushed over to see why, she realized it was the house. The three children, Fanny, Robbie, and Emma, were thought to have been trapped inside the house, but as they were pulled from the flames, it was discovered that the children had been sexually assaulted and brutally murdered. Having their skulls smashed in with was later found out as an axe. Ashland, being a tight-knit town, money was quickly raised to pay investigators to locate the ones responsible for such a ruthless crime. At first, the Gibbons' father was the primary suspect, since he had not been located since the time of the crime and had not returned since the crime happened. Later on, he was located in West Virginia, where he had been since December 16th. On January 2nd, 1882, George Ellis was brought brought in to be questioned for suspicious behaviors. George er, George eventually explained every horrible detail of the terrible crimes committed against the three children. At this point, he also confessed that William Neal and Ellis Craft were involved and that he and William had previously spoken about wanting to have intercourse with the girls before Christmas. You're disgusting. George said that Ellis and William threatened him at gunpoint to come to the home that night to to commit the crimes. He then admitted to holding the girls down and setting the fire, but that he had no choice or else he himself would have been killed. After George was questioned, they obviously brought in Ellis and William to explain their side of the events that took place that night. The entire town shut down for everybody to attend the trial, and the talk of a mob began, because this was 1882, and that happened. But the citizens all agreed that no action would be taken without significant evidence that they did it, and that the trials were set for January 16th. Because it was the 1800s, and mobs still happened, the prisoners were moved by boat to Maysville. Yet a mob still formed when the prisoners were being taken away, since they feared that they wouldn't be served their due justice. The judge realized the feelings of the people in Ashland were fair and brought the three back to Ashland, but under their protection of soldiers. The first trial was for William Neal for the murder of Emma Thomas, in which he was given the death penalty for. Ellis Craft's trial was immediately after, and he was also given the death penalty on February 6, eighty two The execution dates for William and Ellis were set while both men still declared their innocence. Both men were sentenced to hanging on April fourteenth eighteen eighty two Around this time is also when George Ellis was set for trial in May. I'm not sure why their trials were all set at like separate times or why they were each being tried for one specific child. I don't know if that's just how they did things back then. But by this point, George was doing anything he could to prove that William Ellis himself were all innocent. For some reason, everybody always pulls the black man card. So this racist stupid head tried to claim that two black men had committed the crimes instead... But William's coat was discovered near the crime scene and was smeared with blood. So then, George tried to plead insanity. Like, just take it already, dude. You're guilty. For some reason, April 14th came and went and the hangings were not completed. Everyone was confused and still searching for answers, but before they knew it, it was May. On May 22nd, 1882, William and Ellis, along with several other prisoners, tried to escape from jail. They were unsuccessful and the townspeople were becoming extremely irritated with the lack of decisions surrounding their case. Finally, on May 30th, George Ellis did trial where he was charged with the murder of Robbie and sentenced to life in prison. After the city heard about the sentencing, at 11pm, 18 masked men hijacked a train and they broke into the jail and kidnapped George Ellis. He was then taken to a large sycamore tree. The men asked him if he was guilty and George replied that yes he was guilty, and that he, William, and Ellis all deserved to die. Where was this energy a few months prior, sir? The mob then lynched George and left his body hanging from the tree until the following afternoon. I know that hangings still happen, not, like, normally, but can you imagine just, like, walking into town and being like, oh yeah, there's that guy hanging from the tree. LOL. Like, huh? (laughs) In October of 1882, the court announced that the new trial for William and Ellis were set to the 3rd of October. This announcement resurfaced the fuming hate for the crime that was committed almost a year prior, and because of this, the prisoners were placed under armed protection by the state militia. As if the judge hadn't made the people angry enough, he then moved the trial again to the following February of the the next year, and the two were escorted to Lexington by armed soldiers to await trial. As the two were being escorted to the steamboat, train cars full of 200 men came rushing in. The leaders of the mob came forward and demanded that the prisoners be handed over. Obviously, the militia said no and continued boarding the boat where they then set off. I couldn't really find where they were headed to, but I do know that the mob got there first, and when the prisoners arrived on shore, the townspeople and the militia engaged in a shootout, which wounded and killed a lot of the townspeople. Like, why would you go against an armed militia? Not really sure, but... William was hanged on October 12th in 1883, and Ellis was hanged on March 28th in 1885. So, like I said, I usually like to give a why or a reasoning behind why the murderer or murderers did what they did. Um, not that any reason is ever good enough for murder. Like, don't kill people. We know that. But in this case, I really could not find anything besides them being nasty old men wanting to do nasty stuff with little kids. So, Fanny is remembered as a well-known girl with a cheerful disposition and winning manners with many friends. Robbie was remembered for the courage she discovered after losing his leg in an accident years prior at Norton Ironworks. Apparently, he was working and something happened, something landed on his leg, he lost his leg and was adapting perfectly fine. And Emma is remembered as a beautiful girl who was loved by all who knew her so that is the ashland tragedy um don't have much to say about that one except men are disgusting um yeah (laughs) so here's the next one i have all of my information in this mass google doc or word document and i'm trying to figure out which one i want to do next i think i know which one i'm gonna do last and hint, hint, it's the loss in family murders, which is one of my favorite cases. That sounds so disgusting when you say a murder is your favorite case. Like, I always like to say that I love the Holocaust. I don't love the Holocaust. I love learning about the Holocaust. I, I find it very interesting. But when you tell someone that you love the Holocaust, they think you're insane. So I think I'm going to do the... Murder of Sylvester Diaz Hernandez? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, here we go. So, the murderer in this case is Alexis Valdez. He was 18 at the time of the crime. Once again, couldn't find his birthday, which I guess is good since the murderer is not important in the case. I just, you know, like to tell you their zodiac signs because I think it's important and it shows you who a person is or who they could be. This murder happened on Christmas in 2013 in the 2500 block of North Kildare Avenue in Chicago. So, the victim was Sylvester Diaz Hernandez, who is 41, and this case is classified as a homicide, the method being blunt force trauma and decapitation. Yeah, that's what this case is about. So, Alexis lived with his aunt, who was never named, and her boyfriend, Sylvester, in a Chicago apartment. He specifically lived in the basement of the apartment. Their agreement was that if he lived there, he would be going to school, and he would have a job of some sort. He was a young adult in a rough place, and they were willing to work with him until he got back on his feet. I'm also assuming that either his parents were not in Chicago or were not, like, involved with him, and that's why he was living there, because it doesn't really mention his parents a lot, um, or at all. But the murder happened on Christmas Day in 2013 when the aunt went away to a Christmas party with some of her friends and co-workers. Alexis decided that he would remain at the house and he proceeded to get heavily intoxicated. So at this point, Sylvester had returned from visiting his family and he went to look in the fridge to grab a beer, but shortly realized that there were no drinks left. He decided to go to the store to grab more and ask, asked Ale- Alexis if he would want to come with. Alexis agreed but just before leaving, he planted a hammer by the door. They went to the store, got more beer, and as they returned home and walked into the apartment, Sylvester was entering the front door as he was struck on the back of the head by a blunt object. You can assume what and who did it. Sylvester was then hit another 10 to 12 times while he was on the ground. Afterwards, Sylvester, after Sylvester was deemed unconscious by Alexis, Alexis frantically ran around the house, locking all of the doors, drawing all the blinds, and making sure that nobody could possibly walk in what he is about to do. So this is where stuff gets disgusting and if you aren't okay with hearing about dismember- like body dismemberment or decapitation I would click off or skip ahead. Um so yeah this is your official trigger warning. He starts playing super loud music before he begins to dismember the body. He walks into the kitchen and grabs a butcher knife, makes his way back to Sylvester's body on the floor in the living room, and I'm not sure if Sylvester is dead at this point, but in this case I really, really hope so. Um You know for once I wish someone was dead. Yeah. Alexis proceeds to use his fingers to gouge out Sylvester's eyes, and when that when that is done, he cuts off his ears, nose, lips, arm, hand, and then decapitates Sylvester with the kitchen knife. But wait, there's more Yeah. He gathers all of the body parts and makes his way to his aunt's bedroom and lays them on her bed, writing a note that reads, Merry Christmas, Auntie. This is for you. What the frick? You know, I'm a college kid, guys. I'm 22. I have definitely had my fair share of drunk experiences, but never once has murdering someone and dismembering their body crossed my mind. Like, ever. Ever. I just, I want a cheeseburger, and I want to hold on, or hug all my friends, hold them? Yeah, sure. I don't want to, it, <sighs> that's gross. That's nasty. <sighs> he goes to the apartment steps, calls the police, and tells them to come to the apartment. When they arrive, they obviously are not aware of the psychopath standing in front of them, but they do notice the state he's in and the blood on his clothing and skin. They start to question him in their reasoning, and his reasoning and calling them, to which he re- he replies, don't you want to arrest me before you ask me any questions? The police are completely confused by this point, and they proceed to ask him again why they were called. Alexis then slams the phone on the ground, shattering it, and says, I left a present on my aunt's bed. It's her boyfriend's head. Merry Christmas. What? Like, he's obviously showing no remorse, and yeah, maybe it's the alcohol content in his body, but like... He doesn't care. He's He thinks it's cool? He thinks it's intriguing? I don't know. The police are shocked. They detain, detain him and walk into the house to figure out whether or not this is actually happening. Yeah, it is. Uh, They come across the crime scene. They ask if the aunt is home. And Alexis tells him no. They're grateful for that. But he does say, if she was home, I would have killed her too. Psychopath, dude. Psychopath. So... The agreement for Alexis to be living in the basement was that he had to go to job, or go to school and have a job. Um, at some point, he no longer wanted to do this, and Sylvester and the aunt agreed that he probably should move out then. This is what is assumed to have been the catalyst for the events that took place that day. Because, you know, when someone tells you your 18-year-old self to go get a job, you kill them, right? No. A friend of Sylvester said that he's a very loving dad. He cared so much about his kids and his oldest child was 18 years old. That was pretty much the only family that he had from Chicago was his 18-year-old son and that he just wanted to repay his father for being there for him with a nice funeral. The family was gathering money for the father so that he could be remembered for the loving person he was. Selena Diaz, Sylvester's 17-year-old daughter, said that her father was a good person, that he never did anything to anyone, and that he did what he could for her and her brother. He did the best to provide for them when they lost their mother. At Alexis's trial, he was sentenced to 33 years for first-degree murder. What do you think about that? 33 years? You think that's enough time for the brutal and premeditated murder that he committed? And he obviously didn't show any remorse afterwards. Do you think that he drank all the alcohol because he knew he was going to do something when the uncle arrived home from the family gathering? Or do you think he just, he was drunk and he was like, yeah, we're gonna do this. I think... That it was premeditated. I think that he had thought about it, and he was like, "Yeah, um, let's drink this alcohol to make this go smoother than it would if I was sober." But what do you guys think? We're gonna we're gonna jump right into the next case. Okay, here we go. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the Inaya Rayel Macias case. Um, this is the quick rundown of the case. The murderer was Connie Villa, her own mother. Couldn't find her birthday, but she was born in 1978 and was 35 years old at the time of the crime. The day of the murder was Christmas in 2013, and the location was Casa Grande, Arizona. The victim was Anaya. She was 13. The case classification was murder, and the, me- the method was suffocation. Like, not that you ever get to choose, most of the time. You don't get to choose the way that you die, but I would not... Choose suffocation, you know? That's one of my biggest fears is like either drowning or being suffocated. Sometimes I'll wake up at night and Matthew has his arm over my face, and I'm like, the, the quick second in my mind flashes like, oh my god, he's murdering me. But that's only because I'm paranoid, you know? Anyways, so the murderer is Connie, and her and her ex husband, Adam, had recently divorced, and they were in a custody battle for their kids. In 2006, this is a creepy little side fact that i found in 2006 adam had returned home from a one-year deployment in iraq with the arizona national guard and connie was quoted in an arizona newspaper saying just to know that he's safe and in one piece just to smell him i just want to be a normal family again is not that chilling uh it will be when you find out what she did so on christmas day in 2013 connie villa woke up deciding that she was going to find a solution for the ongoing custody battle between her and her husband. Connie then forced her three youngest children, aged three, five, and eight, to take prescription narcotic drugs, and after the children ingested an undisclosed number of drugs, she turned to her eldest daughter, Anaya. Anaya being 13 and kind of knowing what's going on, she refused to take the drugs, which enraged Connie. Connie then dragged Anaya from the dining table to the bathroom, where she then smothered her to to death with her bare hands. This was discovered quite a while after the crime had happened, since they did toxicology reports on all the kids to find out what they had been given. Um, They also gave one to Anaya, but they couldn't find anything, and they were confused. Um, They kept asking Connie, but obviously she was not confessing what she had done for a while. Um, She eventually did, and that's how we know that she was smothered with her mother's bare hands. How sick. Um, I have to refrain from cussing because my mothers um my three mothers watch this, Jolisa, Jennifer, Michelle. And they will ground me for my potty mouth. Um yeah, okay. She then lured her husband Adam, thirty three, to the apartment and repeatedly stabbed him in the upper torso. Thankfully, he was able to escape and call nine one one and actually ended up driving himself to the hospital. What what a rad Dude, at some point after nine one one arrived at the apartment, Connie also tried to commit suicide by stabbing herself in the upper torso as well. Um, I'm not sure if she was trying to make it look like her and Adam got into a fight, or if she really was just trying to kill herself. So thankfully, her younger children were all okay. Um, the hospital was able to treat them, but when nine one one entered the home, she was holding the knife to her chest, and her three youngest kids were standing next to her. Um. So this is a little short case. Um, so we're, we're figuring out the why now. Connie was fearing that her husband, her ex-husband, was going to take her four children and win their custody battle, so she tried to kill them all instead. Uh, yeah, I see why she feared that he would have won. God. Um, the aftermath, Connie was charged with first-degree murder for killing her 13-year-old child and four counts of attempted murder, murder for trying to kill her three younger children and her ex-husband. Um... Adam was not Anaya's father. Her birth father's name was Michael, and he said that we request we request the focus of this tragedy be a celebration of our precious Anaya's life. She was a gentle, kind, and beautiful spirit who was taken from us much too soon. We are heartbroken, she was always smiling, and she loved her siblings. So what a sweet thing to say. Um Connie, I hope you rot in prison. Yeah. Okay. Now we are going to move on to the Lawson family murders, which I am so excited to share this case. Um, that's why I saved it for last. It's one of my favorite true crime cases to either hear about or cover. I went quite in depth with this one, so maybe, that'll, maybe my fast talking will um, counter that and it'll be done in an appropriate amount of time. But I talk like a squirrel on speed, so it's probably going to be fast. Okay, here we go. Alright, so the quick case of the Lawson family murders. The murderer's name was Charles Davis Lawson. He was born on May 10th, 1886. He was a Taurus, and they're known for being charming and tactful. My best friend Olivia is a Taurus, and yeah, don't murder anybody, Liv. Um, The day of the murders. These murders took place on December 25th, Christmas Day, in 1929. Uh, The location was Stokes County, North Carolina, and the victims consisted of his wife, Fanny, 37, his daughter, Marie, 17, his daughter, Carrie, 12, his daughter, Mabel, 7, his son, James, 4, his son, Raymond, 2, and his daughter, Mary Lou, who was 4 months old. The case classification is mass murder, or familicide, and a little sprinkle of incest. Yep, incest is best. The method was shooting with a shotgun. So Charles himself was a tobacco farmer who was remembered for committing one of the most known mass murders on Christmas Day in 1929. He was born to Augustus and Nancy Lawson, who lived in a tiny, tiny town called Lawsonville, North Carolina. In 1911, Charles met and married Fanny Manring, and together they had eight children, but one of them sadly passed away at six years old with pneumonia, because that was back when, you know, people didn't know what was going on with their bodies um also the other day I found out that the founding fathers were like 18 and like like 18 to 30 um why did I think they were like 60 year old men those powdered wigs definitely aged them yeah okay once the family had saved up enough money for from working as sharecroppers they moved into their own farm on Brook Cove Road so now we're gonna jump in to the murders in 1929, just a few days shy of Christmas, Charles Lawson took himself and his family into town to buy new clothes and have a family portrait done. This concerned Fanny, because their money was usually tighter around this time of year. Little did they know that these clothes would become their burial outfits. How chilling. Right there, I feel like that shows a little bit of premeditation. But, you know, who am I? What do I know? I only have my bachelor's degree. <sighs> So, side note, a few days before the murder, Charles and his family slash friends were talking about death. During this, Charles mentioned how he would not mind dying, but he would want to take his family with him. Once again, showing premeditation. But what do I know? So, Marie, 17, woke up bright and early on Christmas morning to make the family a fancy breakfast as well as a cake. At the same time, Arthur, who was 16, went outside with his cousin Sanders to do some chores. So, the, brex- the breakfast was finished, and the family ate, but then Arthur and Sanders returned outside to rabbit hunt shortly after they ran out of ammunition for the gun. They returned to the house to get more where they decided to have a can shooting contest up next to the house and Charles joined in Charles is the father reminder um there's a lot of names cause people used to have like thirteen kids, yeah, so Carrie and maybelle they were twelve and seven, were getting ready to go to their aunt and uncle's house while Marie was finishing up the cake at this time. The little kids were all playing in the front room slash front lawn of the house. They kept coming in and out. Uh, My mom would have killed me for that, but as the three were shooting cans, Arthur had noticed that he was again getting low on ammunition, so he asked his father, Charles, if he could use some more, and Charles' response was chilling. He told Arthur, no, because I am going hunting tonight, and I'm going to need the ammunition for myself. You'll find out why that's chilling in just a little bit. So, this response prompted Charles and Sanders—no, sorry, Arthur and Sanders—to ask if they could walk to town to buy ammunition for themselves, which Charlie agreed to. Soon after, the soon after the girls Carrie and Maybell decided to head to their aunt and uncle's house too. As they took off down the road, Charles went and hid behind their tobacco barn with a loaded shotgun. Once again, I like to give trigger warnings. I—I don't know why people are listening to things if they can't handle it, but here's your trigger warning. It's going to get graphic. Carrie was shot through her hand, into her head, as she shielded herself from her father. Mabel ran away after seeing this, but was sadly shot in the back and killed. After being shot, they weren't immediately deceased. Charles noticed this and decided to then beat them with a two by four until they died. When he took them in, then he took them into the barn, placed a stone under their heads, crossed their arms over their chests, and closed their eyes. Like funeral style, like he was he was preparing them for burial. That's chilling. After this, he locked the barn and headed up towards the house, meeting Fanny on the front porch as she was collecting wood for the stove. She noticed his gun and turned to flee but was shot in the back and through her heart. Charles drug her through the front door where Marie saw and ran over to her. James and Raymond ended up hearing the commotion and came inside from playing. Marie saw that her father was holding the gun and ran over to the fireplace to grab the poker to use as a weapon. She was su- she was shot at such a close range that her neck was broken and she fell into the fireplace. At this point, a neighborhood friend came in from the front yard too, but when he realized what was going on, he fled. Charles didn't seem to want to harm him and only his family, so he got away. James and Raymond, the two younger boys, ran to hide during this. James tried to hide under one of the beds while Raymond went over to the kitchen stove and tried to crawl under it. Um i'm assuming that back then the stoves were lifted like those iron stoves that sit in the corner i'm not sure or he was a very small child like flat stanley small um charles ended up finding them and beating them with the butt of the gun which is assumed to what like what had killed them um mary lou the four-month-old was crying in her crib from the noise and charles ended up doing the same to her as he did to james and raymond Charles then went and retrieved a pillow from him and Fanny's room to place under Fanny's head. He was trying to do the same for Mary Lou, but he slipped in a pool of his wife's blood, soaking the back of his coat. That's what you get, you nasty man. Yeah, we're going to leave it at that. Um. After his pillows, After he got pillows for both James and Raymond and laid them under their heads as well, he then fled the scene after realizing that he was probably running out of time. Charles' brother Marion was popping in for a surprise visit on Christmas, but when he arrived, he noticed how quiet the normally chaotic house was, and he ended up walking in on the crime scene in the living room. Um, My heater in my apartment is about to kick on, and you're going to hear what sounds like the fiery depths of hell. Um, Ignore it, yeah. Or maybe, maybe hell is actually coming, I don't know. Um, thankfully marion ran to get the police who assessed the scene and determined that they needed to find arthur and charles since they weren't around so arthur and sanders were in the store buying ammunition when a citizen of the town ran in and started shooting about shooting started shouting about how the lawson family had been murdered arthur was in disbelief and ran all the way back home when he arrived his uncle had to hold him back from the scene because he was trying to go into the house As Arthur, Sanders, Marion, and the police officers were standing in the front yard, the family dog ran out from the woods. Shortly after, a single gunshot rang out. The police ran towards the sound of the gunshot, finding the answers to their questions would not be completed. Charles had shot himself and was laying in the snow. Charles had started writing two letters, but only wrote one or two words on each. These letters were found next to his body, and it is thought that he was going to finish the letters... But the dogs alerted the police before he could do so, which ultimately caused him to shoot himself before finishing. So why? Why did this all happen? Well, there are multiple theories surrounding the question as to why Charles would want to murder his own family and then kill himself. It is thought that the whole thing was a setup to make it look like Charles had done it and then killed himself after he witnessed a crime that he couldn't keep quiet about. Another theory is that Charles and a black man got into a fight, causing the man to murder his whole family and then Charles always the black man dude it's never it's never the black man there was also an event that a few months prior where charles was on the farm chopping wood the axe had gotten stuck in the wood and when charles yanked it to remove it it swung back and hit him in the forehead this caused his face to swell and bleed and although he never lost consciousness he did begin to get horrible headaches afterwards and his behavior changed so i think there's this serial killer named nanny dos um correct me if i'm wrong but i'm almost positive that that's who it was she was like on a bus one day and hit her head on like the metal part and after that started killing people um she's also known as like the giggling granny or something i think she's the one i'll i'll have to check that but so the hit from the axe caused his face to swell and bleed and although he never lost consciousness he did begin to get horrible headaches afterwards and his behavior changed he also had trouble falling asleep at night, and Fanny would routinely wake up to hear him sobbing uncontrollably. So por- post-mortem, an autopsy was done on Charles' brain to decide whether or not there was something neurologically wrong. But at the time, with technolo- the technology that they had, they couldn't really see any abnormalities. The aftermath of the murder. Um, Arthur was obviously the only Lawson family survivor since he was in town, and he grew up to marry Nina, who had four children. Uh, they went... Arthur changed his name to Buck, and he went by that for the rest of his life, after not wanting his name to be associated with the events that took place that day. Sadly, 16 years after the murders, at 32, he passed away in a motorcycle accident. So a book called White Christmas, Bloody Christmas was published in 1990 that brought up speculations about the motive behind the Lawson murders. So the authors of this book interviewed a ton of people that were super close to the Lawsons and claimed that there was mentions of Charles and marie partaking in incest and if you don't know what incest is you are too young to be listening to this and you need to leave um go watch disney channel so stella lawson is marion's daughter and she came forward to explain that she had overheard overheard her family speaking at the funeral for the lawsons um she overheard them talking about fanny and how fanny had confided in them that she had found incest within the family just before christmas fitting um it was rumored that Marie was actually pregnant with her own father's baby and Marie's best friend at the time then came forward and confirmed it um explaining that the reason Marie had felt so comfortable telling her friend this information was because a few months prior that very same friend experienced something similar I don't know if back then it was normal for dads to make children with their daughters um rotten hell yeah Could this have been a motive though? Like, was this the reason that Charles was experiencing behavioral changes, um, sobbing in the middle of the night? And also, why did he let Arthur get away? Um, did he think that maybe Arthur was, he had the ability to overpower him and it would stop him from completing what he needed to do? Or was it just by chance? The family ended up being buried in a mass grave, which included Charles and his tombstone or headstone was right in the middle. Why? he deserves to be in the trash can anyways the headstone read not now but in coming years it will be a better land we'll read the meaning of our tears and then someday we'll understand merry christmas guys um i'm so glad that you listened to me on christmas you're weird and i love you for that and if you're listening after christmas or if you don't celebrate christmas um happy day happy holidays uh All holidays matter, yes. So, have a wonderful Christmas or holiday. Thank you for taking time to spend it with me while I entertain you. And I actually got pretty far on this blanket. Um, surprisingly so. But now I'm gonna go put it back in the bag that it was in before, and I won't touch it again for, like, two to three months. Um, yeah, I don't know what my next case should be over. Um, maybe I'll do an episode over, like, New Year's murders. Um... I don't know. That that might curse 2021, but it, it couldn't be any worse than 2020. Right? <laughs> okay, guys. Thank you for listening. Check back with me when I post. I don't have a normal posting schedule yet. Remember to lock your doors and don't talk to creepy men. Okay, awesome. Bye!